And if you were not here last Lord's Day, we began a seven-part series on uh, John's first letter, uh, which I have entitled Assurance and Encouragement in an Uncertain Age. And we dealt with the first four verses last Sunday, the prologue to this letter, and today uh, we'll finish up chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. I'll read these words for us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. You know, I know that we uh, take a lot of things for granted in these modern times, but I would imagine that one of the things we take for granted most days is, is light, good light. Because most of us have very good lights in our homes and in our businesses as well. We even take light for granted out on the highway. Because of xenon headlights. You know, I don't know if you have any of those in your car. My wife's car has that kind of headlight. And you know, if you're out in the country and you put those on high beams, you're not going to just see about a half mile down the road. You're going to see the sides and the trees way on up in the trees. You can pick out squirrels and owls and other things up in there. The lights are so good. Those headlights allow us to see so much further than we could used to see in the old days with those sealed beam headlights. When I was in a teenager, I had a 1948 Harley-Davidson panhead chopper. And at night when you rode that motorcycle, you had about a 10-foot circle out there in front of you to see. And that's, that's the only light you had. You know, when this sanctuary was built in the late 1890s, uh, most people were still using kerosene lamps in their homes. And many of them candles, especially if they lived out in the country. Even as little as 21 years ago, the lights in this sanctuary were not what you enjoy today. Because when I arrived here, the only lights in this sanctuary were those hanging by chains. And I think there was one more right above uh, the pulpit area. And the three sconces on either side, that was all the light there was. And you just think about trying to read that small print in that red hymn book in a dreary 
rainy day in the middle of January. And, you know, it was dim. And I, I was remembering that. And this morning when I turned on the lights first thing, I'm usually the first one at the church, I just turned on the hanging lanterns and the sconces. And it was cloudy. And I mean, it was dim in here. Dim, dim, dim. But, you know, a, a generous individual made these can lights possible as a gift to the church. And we've enjoyed them ever since. Light reveals to us what we're not able to see because it displaces the darkness. And this is what John is communicating to us, at least in part, when he says here in verse 5 that God is light. Now, we could take a lot of sermons and talk about what that word light really means and, and the scriptural pictures we have of God and the scriptural concepts that are meant when we read that God is light. For example, we could talk about how uh, He's full of glory and splendor and majesty. That's one thing that we could say in saying that God is light. Or we could talk about how He's holy and pure. There is no darkness in Him. So purity is part of what's going on in that concept that God is light. And we could say He reveals guidance unto us, truth we might say. For in His light we shall see light. Do you know that verse? That's Psalm 36, 9. Write that down. That's the motto of our denomination. It's on our denominational seal. In thy light shall we see light. It points us back to the, to the authority of Scripture. It points us back to God and Himself and the truth that He brings to us. Or we could talk about Psalm 119, verse 105, which says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a what? Light unto my path. But in the Old Testament, among all of these different meanings, and there are a lot more, we can see that God's working among His people is consistently portrayed as the provision of light so that darkness is eliminated. We see that in Exodus 13 in the pillar of fire by night so that the children of Israel could continue to travel if they needed to. We can see that repeatedly in the Psalms. And then as John tells us in his gospel prologue as, as through the incarnation as Jesus makes God known we see all of these references to light. Think about what Simeon says about the baby Jesus when his parents bring him to the temple that day. Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In speaking of Jesus, Matthew quotes Isaiah, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then Jesus himself came, telling the people, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This gift of, 
of light is such a gracious and salvific gift. For the light shines in the darkness, as John tells us in his gospel, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's some good news you can always remember. Regardless of how dark your world is, the light has come. And the darkness is not able to overcome it. Now we know that John is a brilliant writer because of his gospel that is a favorite book of the Bible for many of us. But his genius is also seen here in our text in this one simple yet profound description of the message of Jesus. As one scholar put it, John is able to bring a clear definition to difficult concepts. Instead of compiling a list of all the single, compound, and descriptive names for God, of which there are 192 in the Bible, John simply goes with light an image and word that even a child can picture and say. I can't tell you the number of times through the years in a children's story I've used some kind of light. Whether it's a flashlight or whatever it happens to be because children can pick up on that so easily. And they are, are, are uh, in favor of lights, even night lights lots of times because they're scared of the dark. Light takes away fear. Now, for John, this notion that God is light is extremely important because this is the gist of the message of Jesus, meaning that it's the starting point of the gospel. And not just that, but in, at least in part, a solution to some of the problems facing his readers and the churches in which they serve. And as we think about this message of Jesus that is so simple and yet so profound all at the same time, the next few verses give us some practical applications uh, for our daily living that come from the fact that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. First, John says, if we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, that's the first of three phase, phrases in our text that all begin the same way. If we say, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Most scholars agree that these if we say phrases are theological errors if you will, that some of his readers believed and perhaps some of them even were teaching in the churches. And this phrase that he uses here, uh, to walk in darkness, is talking about habitual sin. This is why how we live is so important because it goes back to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And before I tell you what that specific teaching is, I want you to remember how the Sermon on the Mount has, has been described as the classic statement of ethics in the kingdom of God. 
And it's described that way because of how it addresses both our inward motives as well as our exterior actions, the things we do on the outside. And in this text, John is talking about a little bit, I think, about our inward motives, but mostly he's concerned with our outward actions and behavior. In the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Well, is John not making the same point here? That how you and I live tells the world and tells those around us what's really in our hearts. You know, you can't claim to be a Christian over here on the left hand while at the same time with the right hand you're, you're stealing from your employer. It just doesn't work that way. Those of us who profess to know God should be different from those in the world, as different as light is from the darkness. If we are habitually sinning, doing the same thing day in and day out, we do not have fellowship with God because we fail to carry out His truth. However, look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. I've only been associated with the city of Rock Hill since 1980 when we, I first came here as a summer intern. But the Shepherd's Fold bookstore has been here at least that long because I remember it back in those days. And the fellow that owned it back then had snow white hair And when you walked in that store, he would greet you, and this is what he'd always say. Are you walking in the light? Comes from this verse, right here in this text. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's a great assurance of pardon right there in that one verse. You see, if you're trying to live in the light of God and you're trying to reflect His light, you come to see what a great sinner you truly are. And so God's light, in essence, throws us back on the saving work of Jesus on the cross. His blood, as John reminds us here, is what makes us clean. As the old hymn puts it, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the what? Blood of Jesus. I knew there's some Baptist and Methodist out there. By the way, another little bit of trivia. Robert Lowry wrote that hymn. We only have one of his tunes in our red hymn book. He was a Baptist preacher in the 19th century. We won't hold that against him. He grew up in a household of associate Presbyterians. Seceders, we might say. You know, you always find out some other little reach 
that the ARP church has had on the greater church of Jesus Christ. Well, back to the text. In other words, if it's your desire to walk in the light, your first step is to recognize the darkness that you carry around in your own heart. When we see that sin, hopefully we confess it and God's forgiveness is given and our fellowship with the Father is, is, is restored once again. And as we learned last week, if we have the right kind of vertical fellowship, then we can have the right kind of horizontal fellowship with one another. All of this is renewed and strengthened because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And this recognition of sin in our own hearts is so important because of what John says in the rest of this chapter, beginning with verse 8. The second, if we say. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he goes one step further in verse 10 with the third, if we say. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. In other words, we're making two fatal mistakes if we claim we don't sin, which most of us would make that claim, but, or if we don't ever confess because we think we're not much of a sinner. Now that might describe some of us, in practice at least. The first thing John says we're doing is we're deceiving ourselves. You ever do that? Fail to see reality for what it really is. You know, King David had that problem. You know, he did all of those terrible things having to do with Bathsheba, having her husband killed, committing adultery, all of that, and and he was just oblivious to it. Or at least that's the way it seems until Nathan the prophet pointed out to him what he was doing in his life. And then all of a sudden it all came crashing down. David understood what he had done. He saw the kind of sinner he is in our first reading this morning, Psalm 51. David waxes eloquently on what a sinner he is. Paul speaks to this as well in Romans 7. When he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I am sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. And he says he does that because of the sin which lives within him. That's true for you and me as well. And if we don't realize that, it's self-deception. Not only do we deceive ourselves, but the second thing we're doing when we make light of sin and, and live as if we you know, hardly ever do anything wrong is to make God a liar. Because God is the one who has said in His Word that all have sinned 
and fallen short of his glory. Paul makes that truth clear in Romans 3. Or think about what David says in Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any that act wisely, any that seek after God. They have all gone astray. There is none that does good. No, not one. Isaiah 59 makes this very clear as well. And I'm harping on this because there are a lot of people in the Christian church today who have just pretty much done away with sin. They don't talk about it. They don't think about it. There are certain uh, traditions and backgrounds who say and believe that you can have in this life what they refer to as entire sanctification. That you can be perfect. That you don't sin anymore. You're wholly sanctified. And John is saying in this text that is not right. And you see, it's not just in our day. That's always been the case. That there have been people in the church who think that they don't sin anymore. There was a fellow who uh, uh, supposedly came to Spurgeon one Sunday after a service and said, you know, I, I'm, I'm perfectly sanctified. I, I don't sin anymore and, 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 and was giving Spurgeon a hard time about it, so the story goes. Because, you know, Spurgeon talked about sin a lot in his sermons, if you've ever read any of them, and our need to confess those sins. And Spurgeon was intrigued by this gentleman. He said, well, you know, I, I want to talk to somebody like you. You know, come on home and have dinner with me. And he let this man talk on and on about how he didn't sin anymore and all of that sort of thing. And once he had heard his whole story, Spurgeon stood up from his table, took his glass of water, and threw it across that man's face. Well, immediately, this self-proclaimed perfect man showed his imperfections, causing quite a scene, allowing his anger and language to cross the line of what you and I might call courteous behavior. And after seeing and hearing his responses, Spurgeon said, Ah, you see, the old man within is not as dead as you claim." He had simply fainted, and I have revived him with but a glass of water. Obviously, that man didn't understand what John is saying in this text. And the teaching here in this text is in part why the Westminster divines wrote in their sixth chapter of the Confession of Faith, concerning sin that this corruption of nature, and I'm quoting here, during this life doth remain in those who are regenerated. Now getting around the language there, which is to say that though we may become justified, even when we're converted by grace through faith, our sanctification is never completed or perfected in this world. It just does not happen. And there are Christian people who will tell you there's no such thing as sin. Now they claim they're Christian. What would John say? If we say... We have no sin. The truth is not in us. 
And this is why we have to throw ourselves back on the grace and mercy of God. This is why John makes it a point here to give us this other great assurance of pardon because he knows we're going to sin. Which we find in verse 9 and that Steve used earlier. If we confess our sins, He, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is pure good news. If we confess, He is faithful. And I don't think John's just making a blanket statement here, a general statement about the, uh, God's character of being faithful. I think he's being more specific. I think he's talking about God's covenantal faithfulness because you remember what God says through Jeremiah in his 31st chapter about the new covenant. He says there, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin more. God is faithful to do all of this because all of His promises according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, find their yes, their amen in Jesus Christ. But God is not only faithful, He's also just. That's what John says in verse 9. Now you might be thinking, if God is just, if He truly is just, shouldn't He punish us for our sins? Well, the good news is, that God has punished sin by laying all the sins of the world on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has punished sin by Jesus being sacrificed on the cross, His body broken and His blood poured out for our sins and the sins of the world. It's precisely because God acted justly in punishing His own Son for you and me that He can justly forgive even us. As Paul tells us at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of of God. Now, I didn't look it up in my Greek New Testament, but that's, I'm just 99% sure the same word that's translated as just in our text. That word righteousness, it's usually in the Greek, it's, it can mean both righteous and just. And so Paul's talking about the same word that John's using back in his letter when he says that we might become the righteousness of God. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring us to God. Don't you look forward to that day? When Jesus returns for His people like He's promised He will do in John 14, that He might bring us to God. Or to put it another way, the one who is light took on darkness for you, that you might walk in His light 
reflect his light and live in his light forevermore. I don't know about you, but it sounds like the good news of the gospel to me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.